Mountville Mennonite Church, we are meeting with you this week via recording on our website. And as we do, we're mindful of the extremely, extremely different situation we're in this week. We uh, are walking through a series right now during Lent. And you may recall that our cross is no longer at the front of our worship space as a reminder to us of the significance of the cross, of Christ coming and giving his own life to bring us back to God. And we're reminded that the cross is a symbol of hope, a hope in the midst of a time that can feel like a desert. In the front, if you were gathered here, you'd see we have different symbols reminding us of desert times, times when we feel desolate, isolated, we're reminded of our need for God. So I want to remind you, in light of the times we're living right now, with all the uncertainty and the fear, of a few things that are important for us as a church, and then we'll look at our text for today from Matthew 27, 11 through 14. First, I remind you that our church values are that we are a church of prayer, a church of invitation, a church of exaltation, and a church of restoration. So how do we pray right now? In these times, we pray for our leaders, 1 Timothy 2.2, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We pray for our church and the church at large, not just here in our county or the state or our country, but the world around. We pray 2 Timothy 1.7, for the Spirit of God gave, the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So we invite you tomorrow to spend time praying. We also urge you to not forget our value to invite. What would God have us be or do for the sake of others in this time? If we're not able to see each other, how will we use our words through calls, through texts, through Skype to encourage and to let them know that we care? How might we Remind them that we're here just to listen, just to let them share whatever it is that they have. We also encourage tomorrow, if you're able and you take the precautions necessary, to gather in small groups, to be able to worship together. How about exalt? What would exalt look like? Well, it would be us perhaps singing together in our homes, singing praises. We'll be, we've provided you with an order of worship with the songs that we had planned for tomorrow's worship. Encourage you to sing those or other songs that you have that you can sing together that we would continue to bless the Lord and exalt His name. And finally, restore. How do we restore? Well, we'll know more and more about needs as the time goes on. We know that there'll be people, including ourselves and our own body, affected by loss of income, perhaps a need for uh, provision regarding health care. And so we invite you to be asking the Spirit of God to show us as we open our eyes, as we are attentive to His voice, to how we can be serving in these days. And now we're going to look, as we've been following Jesus to the cross, at Jesus on the day of his trials, he stands before the governor Pilate. I want you to read this passage with me, so open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 14. And as you are turning there, I'd like for you when you get there 
to count with me the number of words that Pilate says in this conversation and the number of words that Jesus says. So let me read and then as you read in your Bible, be counting the number of words that Pilate and Jesus each say. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. So count up those words. How many words did you count spoken by Pilate? You might want to take a moment right now and go back and count those words. What about the number of words that Jesus spoke? Well, if you count Pilate's words, he speaks seven words when he asks if Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he speaks 11 more words when he asks Jesus if he heard all the accusations brought against him. How about Jesus? Four words. Jesus' only words are in response to Pilate's question about being the king of the Jews. He says, you have said it. And when Pilate asks him if he's heard what his accusers have said about him, Jesus chooses to remain silent. Now think with me about our Lord and how he responds in this moment. Jesus says what needs to be said when it needs to be said. He also does not say what does not need to be said when it does not need to be said. Let me tell you something about me. Unlike Jesus, I am silent when I should speak. Not always, but more times than I'd like to admit. And my bigger problem is that I speak when I should be silent. Let me tell you why. A few years ago, my younger sister Betsy challenged me to stop worrying about what other people think of me. I shared with her that I care too much about other people's opinions about me, and she asked me a question that I've never forgotten. What would life be like for you if you lost the fear of what others think? What her challenge did was to make me aware of what I say to position myself so that others will think well of me. She helped me to see how much I use my tongue to guide as well as control and shape the image that others have of me. Her words, her challenge remind me in the fifth chapter of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, these words from the Amplified Bible from Ecclesiastes 5.2. Do not be hasty with your mouth, speaking careless words or vows, or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
Let your words be few. I'm not alone with this issue. We all face this problem of using words to straighten others out. This is especially true when we're accused of something. How many of us are quick to defend ourselves with words or use our tongues to control the situation? Take, for instance, this woman driver who was caught speeding. She says to the officer, My buddy, who's a police officer, is going to kill me. Who's your buddy? David Polino. Oh, you know David Polino. Well, in that case, you should thank him when you see him. You bet, officer. I will do exactly that. The officer stands there in awkward silence until the driver chimes in and says, Can I help you? The officer says, Well, just waiting for my thanks. I don't understand, says the driver. Well, can you read, ma'am? Can you read my name tag out loud? And the driver says sheepishly, Officer, Sergeant David Polino. Ma'am, since we're such good friends and all, and you were going to thank me, I was just waiting for my thanks. Well, in all seriousness, what if you and I were this week to check how many times we use words to justify ourselves? When our reputation is at stake, how often do we turn to words to defend it? Look with me or listen to me as I share Richard Foster, what he says about this in the celebration of discipline. He says, the tongue is our most powerful weapon of manipulation. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we're in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. If I've done some wrong thing or even some right thing that I think you may misunderstand and discover that you know about it, I will be very tempted to help you understand my action. God has much to say about this. And in a time right now when many of us are using words to communicate with each other, especially because we may not be face to face, let's discover what we can learn from Jesus in his encounter with Pilate in Matthew 27, 11 through 14. Since you're already in that text, let me just take a moment to talk about what's happening, what's happened just before this. Remember last week we were talking about Jesus' arrest? Well, Jesus is taken to the council of elders called the Sanhedrin. And gathered there are the chief priests and the scribes. And they lead Jesus to the council chamber where they, after they've interrogated him, they convince themselves that Jesus should be given the death penalty. Since they weren't allowed under Roman law to execute anyone, they then bind Jesus and bring him to the Roman governor, Pilate. So Jesus is standing before Pilate in the palace of the governor. In John 18, Pilate asks, What charges are you bringing against this man? And the Jewish leaders reply, If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. And then to make their charges stick to Jesus, they accuse Jesus in front of Pilate in Luke 23 with these words, We found this man misleading our nation 
and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. So what they're saying is that these are political charges, the kind of charges that a Roman governor like Pilate could handle. Look at verse 11 of Matthew 27. What does Pilate ask Jesus? What does he ask Jesus? Take a moment to respond even though you're listening to a recording. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, how does Jesus respond? You might say it out loud right now. He says the words, you've said it. So what's going on here? Why is this so important? See, the Jewish leaders are determined to see Jesus put to death, so they accuse him of the greatest crime known to Roman law, treason. They accuse Jesus of attempting to overthrow the Roman government by inciting a rebellion. By claiming that he's an earthly king who claims to rule over the Jews, Jesus' accusers are making the case that Jesus has threatened the rule of the head of the Roman Empire, that he is a rival king to Caesar. All right, now that we've talked about the historical context and what the Jews are trying to do here, to persuade Pilate to have Jesus put to death. Here's the question. Why does Jesus not say more? What would make him say so little? He seems to be playing right into the hands of his accusers. What we see here in Jesus as we journey with him to the cross is this. The freedom that he has to let God be his justifier. He doesn't need to straighten others out with lots of words. Proverbs 28.1 in the Amplified Bible says, The wicked flee when no one pursues them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. There's something about being righteous that makes you bold. And Jesus shows us why. See, those who hope in God are as bold as a lion because they know that apart from God's mercy, they cannot stand before him. Jesus is standing before the governor and Pilate is sitting because it was the custom for the judge to sit and those that were judged to stand. What does Jesus know that Pilate doesn't know? Jesus knows that one day their roles will be reversed because in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So what that means is that no one, not even Pilate, is righteous and can stand on their own before the holiness of God. It's no wonder that it's good news for you and I this morning to know Jude one twenty four that speaks about the hope we have in God. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. I picture with me today the possibilities that we can be right with God only through Jesus. And that's why we, even today, in the midst of our culture and the upheaval, we can be bold as lions. There's freedom when we, like Jesus, let God be our justifier. There's freedom to let our words be few. There's a story of a medieval monk 
who was being unjustly accused of certain offenses by other monks. And one day he looked out his window and he saw a dog biting and tearing on a rug that had been hung out to dry. And as he watched, the Lord spoke to him saying, that is what is happening to your reputation. But if you will trust me, I will care for you, reputation and all. Jesus reminds us here that we, like Him, can believe that God can care for us, reputation and all. See, this is why Jesus can be silent before Pilate just as, he was, just as when He was accused by the chief priests and the elders in Matthew 26. He knows that the false testimony brought by the high priest and the Sanhedrin was concocted to persuade Pilate. Look at verse 12 of Matthew 27. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Pilate's not surprised, is he, for the silence that Jesus keeps in the middle of these threatening circumstances. See, Jesus recognizes that the trial is a sham, so He doesn't enter into the charade with a reply. But His silence carries with it an even greater significance. It reminds us of the words of the prophet Isaiah, spoken hundreds of years earlier about Him, the Messiah, in Isaiah 53, 7, where Isaiah wrote, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus remains silent because he is free. He's not only free to let God be the justifier, he's free from the terrible burden that humans carry, the burden of needing to get our own way. Don't you feel that even now in our world with the restrictions that, that we may feel at this point have been put upon us, with the precautions. Jesus knows that He is free. And in John 10, 18, He speaks this out. No one is taking my life away from me, but I myself am laying it down. I'm authorized to lay it down, and I'm authorized to receive it back again. This is the command I receive from my Father. See, Jesus is free to lay down His life without protest. So when Pilate says to him in John 19.10, Do you refuse to speak even to me? Do you not know that I have it in my power either to release you or to crucify you? Jesus can reply to him in the next verse. You would have no, had no power whatever over me had it not been granted to you from above. See, Jesus doesn't resort to words to defend himself because he's free from the fear of man. He rests entirely in the power of God, and so he radically chooses to remain silent. The good news today is that you and I have been set free in Christ from the burden of always needing to get our own way. Even when we're falsely accused, 
even when fingers are pointed our way or there's misunderstanding. Galatians 5.13 says, For you've been called to live in freedom, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love, to love people unconditionally. It's not enough, as we've done during this time, to study the Bible. We must put it into practice. So what do we need to personally do about the freedom that we've been given? How do we show this love unconditionally? What are the steps that we need to take? What might we do in the week ahead? What about this? Why not begin by trusting God boldly and letting God be our justifier? So that every time you and I are tempted to straighten others out during this coming week with our words, we instead choose to take our concern to God in prayer. Wouldn't it be great if instead of resorting to words to justify ourselves, we knew God took care of that and did it perfectly so that we can stand before a holy God, blameless and forgiven, guilt-free. And we can point others to this God who welcomes us. We're in this together. Yes, right now, we're not here. I'm looking at a whole sanctuary of mostly empty seats. In fact, completely empty seats. But we can still encourage each other in the Lord this time. And we can do it with our words, words that will bring blessing. And we can trust God when there's misunderstanding, when the words don't come out right, that God is our justifier. So how can you and I in this week trust God in new ways, in a culture of fear, we can stand as Jesus did before His accuser. We can stand before the judgment seat and know that God has provided a way to be forgiven and to walk freely. And we can use our freedom to love others with no strings attached. And so as we do that, would you pray with me the spirit of this prayer. I'm going to read a prayer to you and then pray for you. Loving God, I choose this day to be a servant. I yield my right to command and demand. And I give up my need to manage and control. And I relinquish all schemes of manipulation and exploitation for Jesus' sake. Amen. Lord, I thank you for our body. I thank you for each and every one who's listening right now in their home, perhaps in a small group, with other families, with friends. And I pray a blessing on them. Thank you, God, for all that we have in you. You have provided for us so perfectly so that we can rest in you even in times of great upheaval. And so I pray for peace, your peace to surround their hearts. And I pray that you would give them hope, 
hope to be able to look beyond ourselves and to say, God, how do you want us to walk through this moment in a way that shines your light? So, Lord, as we pray, as we invite, as we exalt, as we restore scattered as opposed to gathered, would you, Lord, be honored and glorified in our body? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Have a great week. Blessings.